And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic, joined by James McNicholas and Amy Lawrence. Good morning, guys. Morning. Hi. Morning, yeah. All right. I mean, listen, listener. Morning we'll with a try- U, that was. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. For, for It is a good morning, right? We're still here and, uh, you know, the sun still shines, water tastes sweet or whatever you say. But um, we're going to talk about... <laughs> I can't gonna... see any bloody sunshine. I'm just yeah, noise. okay. Cloudy, but, yeah, you know, it, it... glass half full. Well done, Stoney. <laughs> well, you have to be at this point. We are, by the way, listen, we'll try and keep it light. Uh, but the truth is, we're, we're in a bit of a dark place. <laughs> well, we will. Try and keep it light. We will, Sorry, but we're funny. in a bit... We're in a bit of a dark place. We know we are. Um, we know how bad the game was on Saturday. 28th of August is not a day that will go down in the annals of Arsenal history, except in a dark way. The last time, uh, 10 years ago, uh, 28th of August, was the date of the 8-2. So before we start talking about Saturday's game, uh, which player from that side that lost United would you put into the current Arsenal squad? Uh, Amy, I'll start with you. I mean, you can say any of them, but uh, pick one. Yeah, you see, you look through the team sheet. Shall I, for the benefit of our um, our listeners, read through who played that day? Yes, or... I would say so. Okay, yeah. all right. So just as a refresher, dear listener, the infamous uh, uh, capitulation at Man United 10 years ago had Wojciech Szczesny in goal, who was quite young at the time and had recently come into the team. A back four to rival the back four, possibly, that played at, at Man City on the weekend. Carl Jenkinson, Johan Giroud, Lauren Koscielny, who was just back from injury, and Armand Traore, who left the club a couple of days later. Then it gets a bit better. Uh, midfield, Aaron Ramsey, uh, Thomas Rosicki, and uh, young Francis Coquelin making mm. his debut. Uh, and then further forward, a kind of front trio of Walcott, Arshavin and Van Persie. So a reasonable amount of experience there. Who would I... Pick to save current Arsenal from that lineup. Sadly, there's not a massive choice, which is not altogether surprising. I'd be inclined to say Van Persie, just because he was the best player, yeah. probably, of all of those players. Although Aaron Ramsey, you can make a good case for because of his capacity to both create and score goals and make those beautiful late runs into the box. Yeah. Yeah. So probably. Just about, I, I would say, Van Persie. Not that he would have got many touches at the weekend, <laughs> uh, James. I mean, I mean, I like the way that Amy is thinking strategically. Um, what about you? Uh, what do you think? I think, uh, well, I was obviously tempted by Laurent Koscielny simply because of the mess we saw at centre-back at the weekend. 
But I actually would go for Aaron Ramsey, partly because I just think Arsenal still could do with an upgrade in the central midfield. As Amy suggests, he sort of does two jobs in one. He can kind of be, at his very best, he was kind of two players in one Aaron Ramsey. And if Arsenal need anything, it looks like they could do with an extra man out there. But I just wonder if, you know, between him and Thomas Partey, you might have be able to cobble together an effective midfield, especially as you're going to be without Granite Xhaka for at least three games now. I think yeah. that area of the pitch is going to come under particular scrutiny. So I would uh, towards him. Even though, to be honest, I don't think Armand Traore could have done, you know, look much worse than, say, Kolasinac or any of our other defenders on the weekend. Yeah. James, sorry mm-hmm. to butt in. Um, looking ahead, uh, is there a... Is Partey possibly going to be around for when football restarts for Arsenal? That's the hope. Yeah, that's the hope. I think he was expected to resume training during this international break once we're in September. Because Partey Lekonga is something I think everyone can get behind in midfield. I think if if Partey has a setback or doesn't quite make it, then it you know that that area of the pitch does look unideal. Maybe. So you, what you're saying, Amy, is that we, mm-hmm. we choose this, this imaginary person from, <laughs> from t- 10 years ago, depending on what we need, really. Because, by the way, I'm having Lucas Fabianski, who was the substitute goalkeeper uh, on, that, uh, on that day. I'd have Wojciech Chesney as well. But, to be honest, you could have any of them uh, after Saturday. But uh, that's who I'm going for. Lu- Fabianski now, who I think is really quite an excellent goalkeeper and... and I think better than the one we've currently got. But, of course, it's all a matter of opinion. Uh, by the way, if you want more from Amy James, uh, Art De Roche, David Ornstein, Michael Cox and the rest of the athletic team, uh, you can get a third off of an athletic subscription today by heading to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. That's theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. Uh, Man City 5, Arsenal nil. On Saturday morning, we came off this podcast last week saying that we didn't expect uh, anything very different from what we saw uh, against Chelsea. But James, I put it to you (laughs) that this was much, much worse in terms of performance, in terms of commitment. I, I, I mean, embarrassed doesn't really cover it. I was, I was really deeply upset by watching what I saw uh, at the weekend. And while I don't think we'll go down, I just thought it was one of the worst things I'd seen from an Arsenal team in the almost 50 years that I've been watching them. Yeah, it was pretty bad. I think that pretty we bad. have produced some some bad results away to teams before in the Premier League. I can think of some real hammerings at Anfield and Old Trafford and elsewhere. Um but this was certainly one to be catalogued alongside them. As you said, we had low expectations and we managed to underwhelm against those, which is pretty impressive in the circumstances. And I think, you know, while many people, I mean, even this will rankle with some, but I think many were happy to accept the reality we were likely to lose to Manchester City. But of course, it's the way in which you lose. It's the nature of those defeats that uh, sort of defines how you feel about it. And there was very little to take as a crumb of comfort in this game. I mean, the possession statistics in the second half were just absurd. It was effectively a training exercise. And I think what will concern Mikel Arteta most, and I, I imagine many fans most as well, is just the degree to which the kind of defensive platform upon which 
his reign seemed to be built. You know, the one thing that he really did have going for him is that his Arsenal teams looked more organised, more solid, less defensively frail. That appears to have deserted him. And yes, there are issues with personnel, but I don't think that can all be put down to that. There seems to be something slightly coming apart of the seams there at the back. And that's very, very worrying indeed. I mean... Amy, I watched Chelsea play Liverpool uh, the day after and Chelsea went down to 10 men about 10 minutes after we did, end of the first half. And I watched the way they defended and the shape they stayed in and the way that Thomas Tuchel said, we knew we were going to suffer, but we were happy to suffer and we came through it. And it was an object lesson, really, in what to do, how to defend with 10 men. Uh, and it's not like we shouldn't be used to it having Granit Xhaka getting sent off on a fairly regular basis and David Luiz before that. But we just capitulated and laid down for them. That's the thing that upset me more than anything. Ian, you, you, you will remember well how commonplace it was to go down to 10 men in the, you know, yeah. George Graham and early Wenger era. Patrick Vieira got sent off eight times or something. In, invariably, Arsenal would win the game. Uh, not always, but, it, it, you know... There was a very long period in Arsenal's not so long ago past when going down to 10 men was not uh, an invitation to capitulate by any means. It was an invitation to do your jobs with that little bit extra determination uh, and organisation and concentration and see a job through if humanly possible. Where's that gone? And I think the thing that was really troublesome when looking not just at the game uh, against Man City, but I suppose this little trio of um, opening matches that leaves Arsenal in this horrible position is across three matches, three quite different matches. How many players individually would you say you back to compete for a 50 50? We just leave that hanging for a short while while we go through the team and actually well, think about it. But, no, but, the, but yeah. the, the point is, I suppose, that, you know, a phrase that some of us have leaned on in the past that Tony Adams used to say, which is you need seven. In other words, you've got to look around the dressing room and you've got to have at least seven players who are going to go out there and almost sweat blood for you, for the team. I, I kind of think that feels a bit old fashioned now because I think the way that football has evolved you probably need more than seven nowadays you probably need at least eight <laughs> and while I think Arsenal do have some players with bags of potential and bags of quality and we all know who they are it's pretty difficult to be looking at sort of especially young players or new players to be the ones that are guiding lights on that in a in a pressurized team where it looks like the tactics each week might be different the personnel might be different there's there isn't a kind of consistent idea or message, it seems, about exactly what the team is trying to do. And then say, go out there and, you know, and compete for every 50-50. It's, it, it's not happening. The environment is not allowing it to happen. No. How no. can you win football matches if you, if you can't, at very, very basic level, go out there and, and think, even, you know, even if you are a bit worried about your opponent, that I'm at least going to try and compete for 50-50 balls and also haven't been able to do that. Well, no, Granit Xhaka had a go, but he had two <laughs> feet in the air. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, 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 just on the sending off, I do think that um, 
we're sort of slightly talking as if that's what the game hinged on, but it, it, no. it is worth remembering Arsenal were 2-0 down at that point. You know, I think in many respects, the game was already gone and it was on, for me, some really calamitous defending. And that's obviously not to excuse the red card, which made things substantially worse, but Arsenal had already conspired to lose that game, to my mind anyway, by... Yeah gifting Manchester City a couple of very, very easy goals. Yeah, no, when you say in some respects the game was already gone, what you mean is in all respects, yeah. there was not a single person on earth who thought that Arsenal, even with 11 men, possibly even with 12, would have got back into that game. Because, as you said, we had very, very low expectations. Before we go deeper into some of that, by the way, are there any mitigating circumstances? I've seen Andrew at Arsblog say that he does think that Arteta is the unluckiest manager he's ever seen. I mean, I mean, we have been hit. If any other team had lost their two main centre-halves and their main midfield anchor, uh, they would be getting more sympathy than Arsenal, would they not, James? Perhaps. I mean, it does seem curious, doesn't it? Arsenal feels like they're the only club who've... Uh, this may just be my kind of tunnel vision, but it feels like we're the only Premier League club who've had to wrangle with a COVID outbreak. I yeah. don't know if that's sort of geographic or down to anything else. Uh, Arteta, he's certainly unfortunate in that, you know, his first couple of years in the job have seen him encounter a number of quite unusual circumstances, which are far from ideal. I mean, principally, of course, the pandemic. I, I, I see what Andrew's saying there for sure. But I think the problem is that people's patience and people's idea of being able to kind of accept mitigating circumstances wears thin quite quickly you know games against Man City for Arteta I think almost can be categorised in their own little bubble because him him and Pep always seem to try these kind of unusual tactics against each other and they kind of seem isolated to that chess match between those two but when you look at Arsenal's start to the season more broadly the three games you know Brentford Chelsea and Manchester City there are enough parallels there are enough similarities that at the end of the day you have to accept that this is kind of what we are producing right now. And are, are there mitigating factors? Maybe. I mean, we'll see. We'll have to see. Arteta simply has to start producing results very, very quickly after the international break. Or I don't think this is sustainable. Clearly not. You know, one glance at the Premier League table tells you that. Yeah, just only take one though, listener. What, all right? what, what Premier League table? I don't know what yeah. you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, exactly. It, to be honest. Exactly. But this is the point, isn't it, Amy? That that if they showed some fight, which is what you were talking about, if they showed some fight and some desire to not get humiliated, we'd have felt okay this weekend. If they'd gone 2-0 down, Xhaka got sent off and they got into shape and they did what they had to do to just keep it at 2-0, maybe let him one near the end as they got tired, we'd have we'd have applauded them off that pitch. But it just felt like they just went, OK, well, we're going to get beat 5-0 here. And I don't blame individual players. I blame a mentality that seems to go through the club. Yeah, but uh, when you talk about mitigating circumstances before, I mean, you mentioned that Chelsea game at, at Liverpool. If you'd have taken Chelsea's two centre-backs and, uh, you know, best midfield player out of that team and asked them to survive the sending off at Anfield, would they? And and that's an interesting question because, I mean, obviously it would have been a lot more difficult for them. Having said that, they have got a sort of underlying structural organisation yes. and game plan that would have equipped them better to cope. But they also have, broadly, much better players. So they're, they're second-choice players if they're robbed of first-choice players 
are of a higher standard than Arsenal's second choice players. When you look at some of the players that Arsenal were having to call upon or, or Arteta chose to call upon in this circumstance, you know, it's it's common knowledge that some of them weren't, you know, ideally speaking, not going to be at the club. <laughs> or would you say how many teams would X or Y, and I think we know some of those players without naming them, how many other teams in the Premier League would they be getting into? Well, <laughs> yeah. it, you know, it doesn't reflect very well on the bigger picture shape of the squad that Arsenal are still sort of paying the price for having compiled over recent years. You know, it's an absolute bastard job trying to rebuild this team when you're saddled with a certain number of players who might not be quite right, but you can't easily shift. And but there's not an infinite amount of money to uh, to buy, you know, an entire new sort of, you know, squad, not just first team. I, again, though, Amy, I, I'm really not talking about personnel here. I understand. I, I'm happy to name Sad Kalasinac, Cedric Suarez, who we gave a contract to, by the way, a few, last year, and and one or two others. Callum Chambers doesn't look good enough, but. We're not talking about personnel. We're talking about basic commitment. There's 3,000 Arsenal fans who travel 200 miles to go and watch their team and will travel all over the country. That's a commitment to the team. I didn't see that on the pitch. And if Chelsea, by the way, lost three players, they might have lost 2-1 to Liverpool. But you know what? They'd have stayed in that game. And I didn't see any possibility of that happening from our players because I'm saying again, and I'll say this to you, James, there's a mentality at the club... That, that is bordering on rotten but amongst some of those players. I think that there was... I, I, I'm not sure about that. I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure about that. I think that they absolutely did fold on the day. And I think that what happens is we think of instances in the recent or like in the last decade where that's also happened and we conflate those things slightly. I'm, I'm not sure that we can definitively say the mentality is rotten. I think the problem is is genuinely more quality. I really do. And actually, if, you know, Amy's right, this is a huge overhaul to be done on this squad. But, you know, who were two of the sort of biggest offenders at the weekend? And I, I don't enjoy singling people out, but, you know, Cedric Suarez, I thought, looked well short of the required standard. And if you also look at Pablo Marie... The fact that Arteta didn't feel he could pick Pablo Marie after what happened against Chelsea is what led to the back three of Klasnach, Holding and Chambers that was so disastrous. And unfortunately, Pablo Marie and Cedric Suarez are both signings that were made by the current regime. Uh, Mikel Arteta and Edu were both at the club when those players were brought in. So we can't entirely excuse the lack of quality or the substandard second choice players in the squad by passing it off as, you know, the previous regime's problem. It's something that has a more recent past too. And that reflects pretty badly, unfortunately, on, on the manager and the technical director. Yeah. Can I just, sorry yeah, to butt on, in Amy. there, but is it not the case that uh, Cedric Suarez and Pablo Marie were both bought by, uh, under the Raul Sanyehi period? Yes, but I don't believe I, that you can attribute that to one man. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying that specifically, but I'm just saying in terms. It may be that he was the primary mover in those, rather than Arteta and Edu, who, being very new to the situation at that time, sort of had to go along with it. Yeah, that's possible. That's possible. 
I think the current signings are are ones that in the next, you know, few weeks and months are the ones that will define Edu and Arteta. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's true and and we can talk about them at some point. I do want to mention Granite Xhaka. I've got a list of things uh, to talk about here. Um can I ask either of you, did either of you, like me, lose their shit when Granit Xhaka got sent off and he got a friendly tap on the arse from uh, from um, Mikel Arteta as he walked by? <laughs> I, I, I didn't lose my shit, but I did sort of, uh, uh, what's the word, wryly uh, smile at it. I reflected on <laughs> Nicola Pepe sending off against Leeds United and um, Mikel Arteta's kind of incandescent rage about it in the press conference following. Uh, you know, we know Granit Xhaka is a favourite of Arteta and I think that that much was clear in that moment. Okay. <laughs> All right, we'll leave that there. Um by the way, there has been a bit of what we consider might be misinformation going around that Arsenal fans cheered the City goals. They were just generally just trying to keep themselves happy, right? Stuart McFarlane, the Arsenal photographer, says that didn't happen. So does, does Tim Stillman, who was there. Um, I didn't see that. Did you, Amy? Uh, I saw the television cutaway and the commentators drew a pretty cheap conclusion. I don't think the comment... And I, I've seen a lot of... Uh, reaction on uh, social media where people are saying, but it was on telly and the commentators said it was so, but are we a hundred percent sure that the commentators read that situation correctly? Well, judging by evidence of people that I think we all know and trust quite well of having their finger on the pulse of Arsenal fan uh, experience and sentiment, that just seems way off the mark. An easy mistake to make maybe under the circumstances. I think, you know, the, the commentators have got headphones on, they're watching the game, there's a lot going on, there's been a goal, there's a cutaway to the Arsenal fans, they're kind of jumping around and dancing. So, it, yeah, it looks like they might be cele- ironically celebrating the goal. However, that's been shot down by people who were either in that stand, part of that singing and dancing scenario, who uh, all seem to point out to it being the uh, new Emile Smith-Rowe and Bukayo Saka song. which is taken off uh, in, in the beginning of the season, which makes everyone feel optimistic and have something to cling to and something that they believe in. And I, I, it, it seems that that song was going on for ages, quite a bit before the goal and quite a bit after the goal. So it was probably a case of people putting two and two together and making five who were watching and people who were there knowing that that was not the correct sum. The disappointment is for uh, a well-known Arsenal supporters network to put a tweet up with the wrong information, generate massive amount of traffic. And despite people who were there pointing out that that wasn't what happened, not removing their tweet until quite a lot of damage had been done. That, you know, Arsenal are in a bad position. They just don't need elements of the fan base stirring up more ill feeling and division uh, and, and, I thought that was a real disappointment. Yeah. James, can I ask, do you think this is the low point? Because I was looking ahead to uh, the next few games after the international break and thinking, well, let's just say we managed to nick a a result against Norwich. Burnley will definitely be up for it. But then we've got Spurs coming to the Emirates. Um, Her Spurs, who may well still be top of the table. Um, I mean, it's possible if the injuries don't clear up, they could embarrass us there. 
and then things get mutinous, right? I do think that game looms rather large. I, you know, I think it could also be a turning point. You know, I don't preclude the possibility that this Arsenal team are going to look better after the international break. The fixtures are a bit kinder. Players will return from injury. There are things that could give you some cause for optimism. Uh, but I do think that if Arsenal don't win that Tottenham game, or let's say if Arsenal lose that Tottenham game, I think there will be heaps and heaps of pressure on the manager. You know, as if if we think it's bad now, I think it will get worse then. And, you know, when I say don't look at the Premier League table, I mean, Tottenham's success is another good reason not to. Unfortunately, they've had a very good start under their new manager. And I think if they were to come to the Emirates Stadium and uh, demonstrate superiority, yeah, uh, I think that that would not be a, a pretty picture. No, quite. Um, I just want to ask you two a couple of questions that have been sent in by um, our listeners. Uh, and if you're still listening, well done, by the way. <laughs> Thank you for staying with us. All right. Dylan asked, has anyone seen a minutiae, I think is what he said here, of progress in this team since last season? Well, if we're looking for minutiae of of, of uh, progress, I, I have really liked little bits that I've seen from both Lukonga and Tavares. Mm. And I enjoyed Aaron Ramsdale's debut, albeit it was in the uh, League Cup, uh, you know, against um, weakened opponents. But just from the point of view of the atmospheric touch there, which was a little bit heartwarming. So, yeah, I mean, you look to... That's what football fans have done ever since ever, which is look to new signings to be a panacea and give you you hope of of something different around the corner. That's a lot to ask of those guys. I again, I mean, maybe it doesn't count, but I did see things in that. You know, it was great to see Kaiosaka back to back to form and little little cameo moments from Erdegaard in in the West Brom game. But I guess that people aren't really interested in that vis-a-vis the the league matches, which which don't don't give a lot of room for optimism. No. Um, Connor asks, James, how good do you realistically, realistically think that we are at full strength? And we could argue what the full strength team is, but when we get Partey back, when we get Ben White and Gabriel back, when we've maybe sorted out the right-back situation, where are we, do you think, assuming, you know, with a fair wind? I think we're still capable of finishing in the top six. I know people will think that seems ludicrous given our current position, but I do think that there is a clear top four. And although Spurs have started well, I consider them part of the kind of the pack around that, along with Leicester, West Ham. And I I do believe Arsenal will be in that mix. I think that is the absolute ceiling on what we can possibly achieve this season. Yeah. But I... After three games, I I don't discredit that yet. I still think that is on, but it clearly it requires an upturn in performances and results, and that has to start absolutely immediately. And Amy, I wanted to ask you this. This is my question. Do you think that one of the problems that Arsenal have right now is that we still have the mentality of a top six team where perhaps we should be scrapping a little bit more and 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 looking just to, to to nick a point rather than match up against teams. Well, I just think that it's a bit of a strange idea that 
successful teams don't scrap, you know, as if it's an either or. Uh, when I think back to Arsenal's greatest teams, I think the Invincibles were bloody great at scrapping when it came to it. Uh, so, uh, you know, ideally that's your platform to then go on and express yourself and show how good you are. But it's a prerequisite. And until that's something that Arsenal can can find a slightly higher baseline for, I think it will be, be a continuous worry about how far, you know whether it is reasonable to still think top six could be possible or whatever. I was thinking about this not not that long ago, which is those kind of score lines. You know, I think one of the things that hurt about the the Man City game was it was not that surprising let's be honest <laughs> not at all and surprising I, I don't know about you and I'm, I'm, I, 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 what you can remember but you know you're talking about nearly 50 years or whatever of supporting Arsenal and I'm and a wee bit behind but not much and in my lifetime the sort of you know the first whatever 20 25 30 years or so those kind of extreme score lines were really quite unusual um growing up there was a 5 0 defeat at Stoke in 1971 in the double year that was mm. a reference point. It was famous. I wasn't around for it, but I, you know, as soon as you become a fan and you start reading up about things and the history and, and learning about the culture of the club, there was this scoreline and it was like, my God, you know, and this was the team that won the double. It was the best team in the land. And they got absolutely taken apart at Stoke City that season, lost 5 0. It was a total freak. And then years go by and the years go by and you have disappointments and you have cup upsets and you have embarrassments and you have disappointments. But not really a lot of those kind of heavy, heavy scorelines that, are, you know, really bludgeon you. I can't really remember one particularly until there was a 6-2 against Man United in the League Cup. Lee Sharp got a hat-trick. Then a 6-1 against Man United when uh, Igor Stepanov's Played in midfield, I think, alongside... Uh, sorry, played at centre-back alongside Lugini or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and that was maybe the first one of kind of modern times that was just like, oh, my God, what is that? What is that performance? What is that scoreline? What the hell happened? But unfortunately, since then, it's become something that happens, you know, much too often. It's not that total freak thing that happens perhaps once every 20 years. No. And that's where culturally it's... It's it's so hard to but, accept that, you know, that Arsenal have... Something has happened to Arsenal that enables this kind of scoreline. Well, this is the point that I was making, Amy, and I want to put this to you, James. It's not about... I agree, it's not an either-or about scrapping and playing pretty football, but I think it happened during the, uh, the Arsene Wenger era as well that we thought we were better than we were. So we go to these big games going, yeah, we can play our football and we get absolutely smashed. And then finally, the penny dropped one time and we went to Man City and won 2-0 playing Francis Coquelin in midfield and keeping it tight. But we still, I think, and I don't know what you think, James, have this mentality where we think we're better than we are. I mean, I think the performance we gave against Man City was worse than Norwich's performance. They've got limited players. They knew they were going to get tonked, but they did the best we could. We had the arrogance to think we could play. I, I think there is something to that, Ian. And, I, and I've been thinking about this over the weekend because I was reflecting on the fact that, you know, you're right, this did happen to Arsene Wenger's teams, sort of semi-regularly towards the, the latter yeah. end of his career. 
you know, you think of us being... But he would lose games 5-1 at Liverpool, 6-0 at Chelsea, 8-2 at United, and he would finish in the top four. And there was something fundamental about his style of play. I guess you could call it something cavalier that meant that against inferior teams, he was going to dominate and win those games. And unfortunately, against superior opposition, it sometimes meant he was very exposed. Yeah. And I do think that what you're saying is right, that, you know, sometimes when you go to face an opponent and you open up and you try to play, you know, some I remember United sort of conceding six to City a couple of times. Sometimes in these big games, you can get an absolute tonking if you if you set up wrong in a way that if you go there thinking, well, we're probably going to lose this by two, but let's sit in and keep it tight. It might not be the case. I think what's troubling is that when Arteta first came in, one of the most immediate things he did was make us competitive in big games. In fairness to him, Unai Emery did that when he first came in too, but Arteta really mastered it with that FA Cup he run. Did. That period when he beat Chelsea, beat City, beat Liverpool within a few weeks of each other. And it was based upon, I think, kind of an acceptance of our limitations and a very uh, practical way of playing. And when you look at the way he set up against Man City at the weekend, yes, he went three at the back, but he also basically went one in midfield. <laughs> he, he went Granite Xhaka with Odegaard, uh, Smith Rowe, uh, Saka, all ahead of him. And in that first three minutes of the game, you could see what they were trying to do. I guess they were trying to press high. They were going to try and win it, but high up the pitch. But, you know, I think it was a little bit ambitious. Dominated uh, the game, apparently, for the first seven minutes. Well, great, fantastic. Yeah. Um, blow the whistle, please, Ref. But I think, yeah, I, I do think there is something in that. I almost yeah. feel like the way I sort of characterise it is that Arteta, when he first came in, there was this sort of steely sense of we're just going to get the results against, especially against the big teams. We're going to cut our cloth accordingly, do what we need to do. And I think as time has gone on and the pressure on him created by that time and by fans' expectation to kind of create an identity for this team. That's often one of the things that's thrown at him. You know, what's the identity? What are we trying to build? I wonder if it's kind of sort of slightly taken him off course and he's not successfully done it, but nor is he still just doing the very sensible, practical things he was doing in the early days. And we've kind of ended up in a bit of a a no-man's land. Um, you know, the, the one... The one crime of comfort I'm taking is those seasons I remember where, you know, as a, as 10 years ago, battered against Manchester United, but managed to somehow turn it round. Of course, this is a very different manager and a different situation. So we'll have to see what we get over the next few weeks. Yes. I mean, Michael Cox, by the way, has written a piece on the weekend's fixture, ending with the sentence, Arsenal reacted to that 8-2 dramatically by making a litany of deadline day signings, including most significantly uh, Mikel Arteta. That's where we're heading next. We're going to talk uh, just a little bit about the transfer window. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. 
Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We better beat uh, with the handbrake at time. I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic with James McNicholas and Amy Lawrence. Um, the transfer window slammed shut. Why don't they shut it quietly? Uh, but anyway, they're slamming it shut. Um, so far, we brought in Ben White, Nuno Tavares, uh, Albert Sambi, Laconga, Aaron Ramsdale and Martin Erdegaard. And we've sold Joe Willock to Newcastle. And by the way, the best bit of business I think we've done in the whole transfer window, we somehow managed to persuade someone to take Willian uh, on a free. And well done that person who did that. Uh, James, are Arsenal looking to do any last minute business? Do they need to? Uh, Listen, I think they could really do with a right back. And I think they know that much. Um, Lawrence G asked this question, by the way. Right. He'd like to know why signing a right back was not seen as a priority. I think it has been uh, a focus for Arsenal in the window, but they've always said they needed to get one out to get one in. And given the amount of right backs they have, I can understand that. I think what we're seeing, unfortunately, is that the the options are so underwhelming that you almost just have to do it anyway and kind of live with the consequences of that. I mean, they really do need an upgrade in that position. I wouldn't say I'm especially confident that they'll get it simply because time is short, you know, and as the question implies, there's been a a whole summer to deal with this. Arsenal haven't found a solution yet. Are they likely to find one in the final 24 hours of the window? (sighs) Time will tell. I hope so. I think most of the activity will be on the outgoings. I think that, you know, there are a few players in this squad, some of whom played at the Etihad, perversely enough, who are likely to be gone by the time that window uh, yeah, pulls to a close. I'm assuming you'd agree, Amy. And which of those players do you think might be uh, on their bike? Probably almost, you know, of a fairly long list, almost anyone that they can arrange a deal yeah. for. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that it's slightly into beggars can't be choosers territory where the situation is serious enough that they need to remove some players. The squad is bloated still and sales have been very, very hard. So holding out for the kind of prices that they might have been hoping for, you know, at the beginning of the the, the transfer window, you're at the situation where you either have to just write it off or you you have a player that either is unhappy or you're unhappy with them or there may not be space for and that those are very difficult situations i think i agree with james i hope that somehow there is a solution and they can find an incoming right back of uh, superior quality and ambition to the current quartet of options i'm a bit saddened when i look at that quartet of options that at least two of them the situation isn't slightly different for. And I think in an alternative universe, Hector Bellerin and Ainsley Maitland-Niles would make would perfectly out. good right-back yeah. options for the season ahead. Yeah. But we've reached a situation where 
Hector's made it really clear that he's, you know, unhappy, uh, doesn't really want to stick around. But I, that disappoints me a bit because particularly if, you know, the kind of move that maybe he wants isn't quite happening, I'd like to think that with his history and his personality, and he's a fantastically good guy, that he would get back to full focus and, and giving his all uh, in as professional a way as possible. But obviously he's not been available thus far, really. So something's got to give. And, uh, you know, I, I think when James talks about one's got to go for um, one to come in, you know, you'd almost be quite happy that a couple can go and one can come in. If oh, the one that comes I, I in is the right one. Because uh, it's be such honest, a terrible situation. And, and there's nothing worse than having players around the place who feel like they're never going to play. They are not. They don't really feel properly part of it. They're not motivated. It, it just isn't conducive. It's not ideal. And most clubs have to carry a little bit of that, but you want to minimise it as much as possible. No. But maybe the closing of the window will provide a degree of clarity on that area anyway. As you sort of suggest, Amy, if the deadline comes and goes and there hasn't been a buyer for Hector Bellerin and there hasn't been a buyer for Ainsley Maitland-Niles, you know, presumably at that point, there's a conversation with the manager and the situation in terms of availability and pecking order you would like to think might change. And actually... You know, people may have their concerns over those internal options, but we might weirdly be in a better position after the window, even if we don't make a signing, because players who we currently are not inclined to pick might suddenly be in contention for selection again. In the case of Hector Bellerin, you'd certainly like to think so. Yeah, I mean, I was watching that game at the weekend thinking, surely even a a sort of unhappy Hector Bellerin could do a better job. Uh, than Cedric Suarez. Are there any? Are there any truth? Is there any truth in the Basuma rumor, or is that just wishful thinking on our part, James? Uh, I have to say, I think that may be wishful thinking. I, I don't know that Arsenal are going to do another central midfield in this window. They might do because maybe what happened with Granite Xhaka at the weekend will have caused some reflection, and of course <laughs> weakens the squad for the next few weeks. Um, yeah, but. I haven't heard anything as of this moment to suggest that that's uh, imminent. Right. Very much looking forward to watching Granite Xhaka playing for Switzerland in the international break. I'm sure it'll be excellent. Should we have a song? Should we have a song to end? I'm sorry this hasn't been more upbeat, listener, by the way, but honestly, uh, I, I don't think i felt this low watching Arsenal in quite some time. I only really watched the second half out of, I don't know, some ridiculous sense of duty towards uh, our team. Uh, Amy, let's have a song. Well, I mean, <laughs> the one thing about having insomnia at a time of Arsenal crisis is those three o'clock in the morning periods really couldn't be any more bleak. So <laughs> I spent uh, that period this morning, you know, going through, looking for the absolute perfect, horrendously miserable, melancholic tune. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> I put together quite a good playlist, actually. So maybe maybe that could be shared in future. Uh, anyone know Beth Orton when she sings, uh, I wish I'd never saw the sunshine. I wish I'd never saw the sunshine because maybe I wouldn't mind the rain. Yeah. Okay. James? Well, I've got to shout out our listener, Stoke Gooner, who tweeted us saying, Sorry for the song for the end of the show on Handbrake Off. Look at the table has to be Yaz. The only way is up, yes. uh, which is certainly appropriate. I was going to go for a song by uh, Bruce Springsteen called I'm Going Down, uh, which is surprisingly cheerful, given the <laughs> lyrics and the title. 
Excellent. Um, I mean, actually, shout out, by the way, to the fans, singing to the Man City fans, you're nothing special, we lose every week. I mean, that did make me laugh. Um, actually, I feel sorry to cut in there. I think that, again, there was some clarity on social media there. Apparently, it's an old clip of West Ham fans. Oh, if you, if no. If you look closely at the, uh, at, the, uh, at the attire, there's a lot of scarves and jackets and it's floodlights what? that were not akin with a 12.30 a.m. kickoff in August, but... I but I have to say, that kind of gallows humour was present on, on Wednesday night it at West Brom. There was a lot of, you know, how must you be? We're winning away, or all those kinds of things. And <laughs> all I, the classics. Yeah, all the yeah. classics. Yeah. Oh, well, um, I take it back. But, but the general feeling of gallows humour is there, and we salute you, Arsenal fans, for travelling up and down the country uh, doing that. Um, well, I, there's a song I used to love by Garbage called I'm Only Happy When It Rains, but I've realised it's not actually the case when it comes to the football. I was just really miserable all weekend. I'm going to go for Help by the Beatles, because we could use some. Help, I need somebody. Divine or otherwise. Uh, and Abby, by the way, our producer, has done uh, I'll Be There For You, which is, what is that, the, uh, the Friends tune, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so... Okay, well, uh, we'll finish with that. Thanks for listening, by the way. We will, by the way, international break week next week. So we'll have a, I don't know, hopefully slightly more upbeat uh, look at what's going on uh, with the Arsenal uh, players and the team. Thanks to Amy. Thank you to James. Thank you to Abby, our producer. Uh, I'm Ian Stone. And uh, thank you very much for listening. This is Handbreak Off, the Arsenal podcast, brought to you by The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.